You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin Story Machine podcast, an exclusive limited series exploring diverse aspects of children's literature. Welcome to Story Machine. My name is Janet Smith and I'm the festival's children and young adult programmer. Story Machine is for everyone with a love of children and YA books. And in this chapter, we'll be rambling through the latest novel by writer Caroline O'Donoghue called All Our Hidden Gifts. Caroline is a journalist, an author, a podcaster. She's already published two novels, Promising Young Women and Scenes of a Graphic Nature. But this is her first novel for young adult readers. She's also currently writing a set of personal essays exploring her experiences of feminism and witchcraft. And that's quite pertinent to what we're going to be talking a little bit about just now. All Our Hidden Gifts is a beautiful culmination of teenage friendship, of young people discovering who they are, their identities, what they want to fight for in life. And on top of that is sprinkled magic. There's also a little bit of a thrill. It's a little bit creepy, but it certainly draws you in and takes you through on a fascinating story and journey. Hello, Caroline. How are you today? Hi, Jenna. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I really, really no enjoyed problem. it. No <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, you know, to, to kind of set the scene, where in the world are you talking to us from? Oh, okay. So I am in South London, um, in a like a fairly, fairly suburban part of the city that I only recently moved to during the pandemic because uh, living near the interesting stuff became rapidly pointless when all the interesting stuff was closed. Um, so I'm in our spare bedroom at my little desk. I'm looking out the window and there's a lovely amount of trees happening right now. <laughs> and how has the last year felt for you as a kind of creative person? Has it uh, been helpful to have been in lockdown or have you found it quite difficult and challenging? What's interesting is that this has gone on for so long now that I think everyone has found it um you know, really, you know, a wonderful like time to take stock, all the sort of cliches. And everyone has also found that moment where they're like, this is bleak. I don't know if I can go on. How how can anyone write like this? How can anyone create like this? I feel like I've oscillated between the two phases. Um, but I feel very lucky to feel that it's mostly column A more than column B. I've definitely had bleak moments, but in general... I found it quite helpful for writing about teenagers in particular because I'm sure lots of people have made this comparison already but this feels like being a teenager doesn't it it feels like you're you're spending so much time in your bedroom like you're mad at everyone you can't go out you're spending a disproportionate amount of time in public parks you know it's it's very helpful for getting into a sort of a teenage sensibility and I and I'm I obviously I wrote all our hidden gifts the first book in 2019 but I'm I spent most of the pandemic writing the sequel and so it's been I feel like you can definitely feel the constrainment in my psyche in that book and I think <laughs> it'll only help it seem more um you know grounded let's talk about all our hidden gifts and uh can you set the scene 
and introduce us, the listeners, to the different characters in the novel. Okay, sure. So, um, All Our Hidden Gifts opens on our protagonist, Maeve Chambers, uh, who is a desperately lonely teenage girl and is this person who is, she's the youngest in a big family. There's quite an age distance between her and her siblings. She's not doing so well at school. She doesn't have very many friends. She's sort of one of these girls who kind of clings to not even the most popular girls, but sort of the B or C tier popular girls. The kind of girls who are sort of popular because there's nothing wrong with them, more because than because there's anything fabulous about them. And we get this sense that even though she's clinging to the edges of these groups, she doesn't really have a real friend and that there was a friend, but that friend is no longer. We find out that Maeve alienated herself from her best friend Lily O'Callaghan, who was her best friend since childhood, about a year previously to the book beginning. And she has really no way of fixing this, except that she rejected Lily because she didn't think Lily was sort of cool enough or, or just as, just basically as odd. She's just, uh, Lily's just an odd girl. And so she's sort of living in the aftermath of that. Now, very early on in the novel, she makes some trouble for herself and she ends up getting in-school detention where she has to clean out a big cupboard. She finds a pack of tarot cards. Despite never really being good at anything in her life, she's somehow very good at tarot. Uh, she starts telling everyone's fortunes. Everyone thinks it's a great laugh. And then, as things often do in girls' schools, the worm turns. People start using it for more bitchcraft than witchcraft and they sort of force her to give a reading for her former best friend Lily. The li the reading goes extremely badly and then very shortly afterwards Lily disappears. And the rest of the novel is basically a way to get, uh, sort of trying to get Lily back via the same means she disappeared with Maeve's new friends who's um, uh, Lily's brother Roe and her new friend Fiona. Brilliant. I'm just very in intrigued why uh, you wanted to kind of bring in that idea of the tarot cards because actually the book um, would would have stood very nicely as a kind of um, depiction of that intensity of relationships that young women have in their teenage years um, and that kind of uh, shifting sands of relationships and which group you're a part of and how your insecurities come out in your relationships and friendships but you've thrown into to this this idea of the magic and the tarot cards and I, I'm just really intrigued about what what the inspiration for that is. Of course well I was I myself was like very deeply into magic and tarot when I was when I was a kid I sort of got my first ever pack of tarot cards when I was about 12 and then, you know, we spent a lot of time going in and out of magic shops, buying sort of books on Wicca and, and all that kind of thing. And when I really think about it, magic took over from horses because I think, <laughs> I think you kind of, you get into the ponies when you're like sort of very, you know, seven or eight, you do your riding lessons. And then at a certain point in your early teens, you realize that, uh, your, ne your parents will just never buy you a pony and you have to give up. And so then I transferred right, in right into magic. But when I think of those two hobbies coming back to back in my life, um, it was all about control for me, I think. It was all about having a space where you could feel absolute dominion in a extremely uncertain 
time and also in an extremely uncertain body. You know, I think teenage girls have so much to be frightened of. They're seen as both predators and prey. They, their bodies change so rapidly and never in the way they think it's going to. You sort of, you look forward to puberty sometimes as a young girl is this sort of blossoming and then you get to it and it's just clammy and strange and things don't fit. And if your parents sort of don't instruct you on one of the main sort of items for controlling your femininity, whether it's bras or deodorant or whatever, you, you just, you're just wrong. There are so many ways for you to go wrong and finding any place where you can find control or dominion is so powerful. And I think Wicca and, and witchcraft and everything kind of associated with that lifestyle because it's so close to the earth. It's so about change and about accepting the fluctuating nature of everything around you I th and about finding control, finding space for you to feel just less powerless. I think it's such a powerful thing, not just for girls, but for anybody who doesn't feel like they are given the same tools as everybody else, you know? Uh, so yeah, that was why the witchcraft aspect was so important to me because I there is this shifting sands and the sense of you know the unfairness of being a teen and the 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 peer groups and all that kind of thing. But I wanted them to feel powerful, and that and witchcraft was a way of doing that. The the pressures of um, that they kind of the teenage years are beautifully depicted. So you know, Maeve is under pressure in terms of schoolwork and achieving at school she's got all these older siblings that you mentioned all of whom are quite high achievers so she it feels she's constantly in a position where she is comparing herself to others and worrying all the time about her place and how to find her space within it um and I'm interested about the, the, the character that she has and how it then reflects those who are around her, who are also quite ambiguous characters. I'm thinking about Ro, who is exploring his, uh, I suppose, gender fluidity. And then there's Fiona, who becomes the, the, her new friend, who's from a really interesting um, background in terms of her race. So there's you've placed me within this uh, kind of circle of of people who are not conventional, let's say, um, and and different from her. But she's that that fascinates her as well. Yeah, and I think I was really keen. There's a well-worn narrative with teen witches. You know, there's Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and there's sort of Charmed, and um, there's there's so many things. Like you go on forever, the craft and all of that, and usually they are. Um, with with you know some exceptions with one of the characters in the craft, usually the girls are white. Uh, usually it's all about sort of Catholic school uniform and like smoking outside and all that kind of thing. Uh, usually they're straight. Usually they're cisgendered, and that even though I I enjoy the trope and clearly I'm playing on the trope quite a lot in this book, it it does leave out most of the people who actually practice these things, right? The people who are the most likely to practice any kind of witchcraft in real life are people of color, are people who, you know, are, are, are of different gender identities, are queer people. Like, there's a reason. It's not a coincidence 
And there's a very interesting study that I read on this many years ago that like really stuck with me ever since. There's this thing called, I think it's called the nexus of control where they did a study on all different people in America and uh, of all different backgrounds and orientations. And they said to them, you know, what do you believe in? What are your spiritual practices? Have you ever gone to an astrologer? Do you read the Zodiac? And overwhelmingly, if they were white, straight and male, it was, they ticked almost no on everything. They, you know, they didn't, they didn't go to church. They didn't see an astrologer. They didn't read their horoscope, all these different forms of spirituality that you can express. They didn't do it. And the further you were away from that category, the more likely you were to do those things. And what they summarized with this study was that if you think that you're in control of your destiny and you're sure of that, then you won't use magic or spirituality. But if you don't think you're in charge of your destiny, because you're not, right? Because you're the victim of like poverty or of prejudice or of all these different things, you are more likely to um, use spirituality. And I found that fascinating. And from then on, I was like, it just stuck with me in such a deep way. It was like, you really can't tell a book about magic and have it be a entirely wide or entirely straight gaze. It's just not honest, you know? That feels like a, the perfect point in our conversation to pick up on the children of Bridget, mm. which is an alt-right group that is featured in the novel. And that idea of the nexus of power, as you were talking, I, I kind of, I, I see you aware that that idea for that group may have come mm. from um, in terms of your, your, your writing about the children of Bridget. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that particular group that manifests in the, the story and the fact that they are all about control, mm. um, but not giving control, but having that, that power over young people and young people's choices and uh, choices about themselves and their identities. It was a really interesting thing with the Children of Bridget because I, I realised as I was writing this draft that I had this, this um, you know, spiritual sort of magical thriller whereby this kind of revenge demon takes a, a young girl. But then I kind of realised the limitations of that, of like, you can't argue with the demon you know you can't like there's I didn't want it to be this sort of to be so supernatural as to to lose its grounding in the real world and so I sort of started thinking okay so this massive thing has occurred the spiritual shift has happened in this in this way what are the effects of it and like what is magic's opposite really if there if every action has an equal opposite reaction what is the equal opposite reaction of this one magical act summoning this kind of this revenge demon that takes lily away which i don't think is a spoiler because that happens quite soon in the book um and for me the opposing thing of magic is religion um and and just organized religion really which is this thing of if you kind of take sort of the Wiccan worldview of it being this feminine, ungoverned thing that is very much about like having a relationship with the earth and and all of this and, and your ancestry, then the opposite of that really is a sort of a patriarchal structure that is that is very into control, that's very into hierarchy and very into there being one interpretation of everything. And around that same time, I read a piece, I think it was by the journalist Ellen Coyne, who was writing about, it was, I think it was um, during Repeal the Eighth, where she had written about American groups 
that were funded by sort of Catholic groups over there who saw Ireland as being a kind of a um a sort of a cultural motherland where conservative values were still upheld and they had like a kind of a an interest in preserving that for some reason this place they had never been and so they were sending all of these groups over to protest against repeal despite really having no dog in that race <laughs> and i found it fascinating and i found the idea of people fighting for ireland's soul really fascinating as well and i i kind of it all sort of mixed around in the blender of my head of this sort of okay what if this revenge spirit that's summoned into this town, it creates this sort of magical, not apocalypse, but like this sort of this shift that sort of this kind of gap in the in the great blanket of the magical thread of the universe. And what if that discord is felt and that vulnerability is felt? And what if something then moves in to match it, moves in to take that opportunity? I hope I'm not rambling. I hope that makes sense. Sometimes it's hard to express uh express this stuff and I, I haven't talked about this book very much yet so I hope I'm expressing it okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah that does make sense and also there there is a, a point in the, the the novel where uh you describe that beautifully as well as as Maeve because has that same realization as well that that something has has shifted in in kind of universes so that there is now a kind of a, a tear which has yeah. has let the the housekeeper demon uh come through so uh, yeah that 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 makes perfect sense i'm also interested in the i suppose that juxtaposition with the novel between um the kind of the big global issues of growing up uh you know having that realization of who we are as individuals what we want from life trying as you say to to kind of have some control over uh, who we are and what our choices might be in life but the story is very rooted in Ireland and in uh, Catholicism and you know that 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 kind of quite um, claustrophobic small town feeling which I suppose is also universal because you know small towns have have a kind of uh, a sensibility regardless of where in the world they are but you yeah. you don't shy away from making the the kind of cultural specifics there within the book so I'm, I'm interested in you live in London but you've chosen very much mm -hmm. to root this book in in Ireland and and what why why did why that choice is it because of the the religion versus magical witchcraft element or what was that choice it was very much like it was it began very much as a personal choice and it it really became sort of a labor of of love really in that I was um I was home in Cork for the first for the longest time really like I I I I've emigrated in 2011 and all those years I came home frequently but all never really longer than 5 5 or 6 days maybe um, but mostly just for weekend stints because lots of my friends had emigrated as well and like there was really a diminishing population of people I, I could really hang out with apart from my family. And so I sort of lost touch with Cork as a living organism, I think. But then a couple of years ago, um, I had to go home for a long time for a sort of family emergency and I ended up spending a long time. I was there for two and a half weeks, I think. And the whole time I was sort of reconnecting with the sort of 
the place that I had grown up in. And I, I sort of remembered for the first time what a gorgeous way to grow up it actually was. Because Cork City is a university town and you you go out from a really young age and it's very small, it's very walkable, like the, the bus routes are very manageable. And so you have a, or I certainly did, I had a huge amount of freedom from an early age. And I was like, you know, when I was in my teens, I like was in a band with some people who were in their 20s and that for some reason was normal and, and, and felt fine. And I just really felt like I had owned the city and I could access all of it. And it there was a huge sense of freedom from that, particularly in my sort of late teens. And as I was kind of walking around a lot and just sort of like back in my old childhood bedroom and just spending hours walking around the city back like I did when I was 15, I was like, oh, I love it here. I love how Cork in particular has this sort of like, this you know slightly kind of Edwardianness mixed with a kind of a grunginess that's very like independent and very anti-Dublin and like it's it's um just a gorgeous place to grow up and it's so musical and it's just so so full of these things happening under the surface all the time but it's also this very old place that's traditional in many ways because people stay there a long time and generations of people stay there a long time and people know each other and and rumors get around quickly and it's um i wanted to combine those two things it's it's really i find a lot of it is a kind of a love letter to cork city as it was back then which is why i don't call it cork city in the book it's it's kilbeg because i wanted to be playful with the geography but i also wanted it to be this place that existed in my memories and not in anybody else's, you know, because everybody has their own version of their home city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, which which works works really well. You get a kind of sense of of it being busy enough to to be interesting uh, for a young yeah. person to grow up in. But at the same time, there's a, that kind of sense of remoteness because all of Maeve's older siblings, apart from... Uh, Joe, who uh, is still at home, yeah. they've all headed off to other places and other places in the world as well. So, so that again, that feels like it reflects your experience of that point in your life when friends were uh, emigrating and, yeah. and you know moving and living elsewhere. Yeah, and there's this thing. There's this thing with the particulars of like Maeve's existence, where it's like, you know, she can she can go to she can go to gigs and stay out but also if she like you know one of her sister's friends sees her kissing Roe and and like it gets back to her sister immediately kind of thing it's that small but it's that big at the same time you know <laughs> yeah it was instantly recognizable to me there was uh, quite a lot of that in the town I grew up in where did you grow up uh, a place called Linlithgow, which is outside of Edinburgh. Oh, great. But I remember once sneaking into a pub when I was underage and passing on the stair into this pub, a friend of my brother's, my older brother. Yeah. And by the time I got home, my brother knew I'd been in the pub. Of course. Pub. It was yeah, just, that's, that's it. Was that, yeah. <laughs> that's all you need to say. I know exactly the size of that city. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and just kind of thinking again, which, and, and be a bit self indulgent, kind of you're making it as personal as this but I I still even at my age <laughs> I'm older than you feel that that kind of clenching inside of slight uneasiness when I think back to some of my teenage years and the you know the the, the, the those friendship groups and the challenges and that that just not knowing how to even envisage a future far less even begin to navigate mm -hmm. what the next step beyond school yeah. might look like 
Um, and so for me, the thought of writing about that period would make me mm. very uncomfortable. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued why you know, you've, you've written two novels already that d- don't really focus on that kind of space and time in life. Why now you've chosen to kind of head back to that, that teenage world um, and kind of explore what what it felt like at that point. Yeah, I think I th- the thing is to write this these sort of books, and for them to be any good, I think um, you have to have an extremely like frank relationship with your own memory, um, and even even like you know events that you because even though this is, this is not an autobiographical text, it's um, you know obviously the only reference you have for teenage emotions are your own teenage emotions and you have to sort of dig back and like memories that you think of as like oh yeah that was a pretty happy memory that was a good 16th birthday and then you sort of like really sit in it and you kind of peel it back and you're like there was a you know a horrible boy and it makes my insides darken when I think about what he said to me or you know that kind of thing and it's genuinely very, very uncomfortable. And I do think you need like 15 years minimum distance <laughs> from that time in your life <laughs> to be able to think about it in a frank way and also not like walk into the sea, you know? <laughs> like that thing of like that central sort of conflict of the book of, you know, having like Maeve has this friend who... She, is she thinks he's a genius and is like so much fun and the the most her most beloved person in the world but she still treats her so cruelly because she's so afraid of you know how she's being perceived in a kind of a wider social sense and like that is i don't know a single adult who doesn't have a story about being on either end of that dynamic like i've got a friend who and like i think boys are much more lord of the flies about it who was like literally like taken to the woods and like had had rocks thrown at him he was like tricked into a wood clearing and then had rocks thrown at him and that was how his friends told him that they were no longer friends and like I remember like it's just awful and I remember like um I I've definitely been on both ends of that dynamic at some point in my teens like I remember being like stood up by a friend who had gone to a different school and found new friends and her just leaving me wait by a sentra for hours and hours and hours and then I called from a payphone her house and her parents pretended that she wasn't in and I knew she was and it was awful and like and thinking back on that it's so crunching and like it's just you feel like your bones like coming together like an accordion you know it's just <laughs> yeah it's so difficult to think about but I also think it's um so many issues you know in quotes that you can write about when it comes to teen girls lives whether it's you know eating disorders or pregnancies or self-harm or all that sort of stuff that we see so frequently dealt with in children's publishing and teen publishing but the sort of the, the the subtle things that you do to one another that isn't even necessarily bullying it's just freezing isolation i think that stuff really sticks you know i think it's quite brave then that mave is our central character because there are points where she isn't entirely likable yeah to the reader uh, we can recognize her selfishness and the the cruelty she demonstrated to lily as you know we begin to hear about how that relationship kind of came to an end um so uh i'm 
I'm curious about why Maeve was the driver for the story as opposed to, say, Lily, because Lily's experience we don't really know mm. about. When she disappears, we don't know what's happening to her. So, you know, the, there's almost like a parallel story that we've yet yeah. to, to learn yeah. uh, with Lily. Um, but she's, I don't want to use the word victim. That's, that's not quite how, how she is. But, but why it's Maeve, who's kind of almost like the perpetrator. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, it's her story yeah. right here. Yeah, she's, it's interesting because I think you hear a lot about, um, like you think about things like Mean Girls or whatever. Um, you know, like stories where the popular girls are awful to everyone and for some reason they have a hundred friends anyway. And I don't know about your experience in secondary school, but like that was not my experience. Like in my experience, the popular girls were popular because they were nice. Like they, they were for some reason attractive, wealthy and well-adjusted and they were nice to people. And if you happened to be sitting next to them in like a double science class, they would ask you really... In a, in a remarkably well-adjusted way, like about your life. And you would feel like you were being interviewed by like a beauty queen and you would feel on fire for a day. <laughs> in my experience, the awful girls were the ones that were like a few, a few rungs below that, or maybe just sort of a couple of rungs below the center and a couple of rungs above the bottom were those girls who are just like terrified of being nothing but they're also desperate for invisibility. They just kind of want to pass. They want to eke through. And those are the ones, because they live in a constant state of fear of either acting out, act being wrong in some way. There are so many ways to be wrong when you're a teenage girl. Those are the ones that do the really cruel things um, from what I remember from school anyway, because they're, they're terrified all the time and that fear comes out. And when they see people who aren't afraid, it freaks them out even more. And that's exactly the dynamic between Maeve and Lily is that Lily's at the very bottom, but she doesn't care. You know, she's, she's one of these people who's just going to get through school and then do something amazing. But like Maeve does not have that, that purview yet. She's just eking out a living day to day. It's like prison, you know, it's like you have to beat up someone in prison. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and I find that, um, that worldview in that place just much more fascinating to write about than somebody who is really well adjusted in their own way, but who bad things simply happen to, you know, um, somebody who, who does the bad things I think is, is just, yeah, just more interesting to me. It's funny actually talking to you about this because I'm watching your background and uh, the prime of Miss Jean Brody is there. And that's such a great story <laughs> yeah. about like the things, um, the things that teenage girls do to each other and are forced to do to each other because of the people they look up to, you know, and it's a similar thing happening here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I realized actually as I was sitting down that, um, yeah, I, yeah, that's my poster of Catholic guilt as well on the uh, yeah. the wall behind me. Yes, and very much an Edinburgh book as well. It's uh, fitting yeah, on many absolutely. levels for you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> for me, there is kind of like an untold story yeah. in the novel, which is what happens when Lily disappears. We do encounter, oh, I, I don't know how to do this without giving too much away. We do get a kind of little hint as to what's happened mm -hmm. to Lily uh, towards the end of the novel. 
but it does for me leave the story with a sense of ambiguity is there more to come with these characters or yes uh, or, very or was much it intentional so. that you were leaving it for us um oh, brilliant yeah yeah no there, so we're gonna hear a lot more from Lily Lily's much more of a character in the next book which I've just finished writing and is going to copy ed- edit phase very soon um and there's a lot more from her and like how she feels about what happened to her. Although it will always be somewhat hazy because I don't think it's meant to be understood on a human level in a way. I think it's just sort of, it exists on a different plane of reality, what happened to her. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I I like having that ambiguity and I liked that. Weirdly, have you ever seen that movie, The Big Sick? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was very, I was really inspired by that film um, oh, okay. where... <laughs> which is a weird inspiration point um which is that you know the story of that movie for anyone who doesn't know is um you know Kumal Nanjiani he falls in love with this girl um for cultural reasons they can't be together they break up and then very shortly after they break up um she falls into a coma I think she's extremely ill I can't remember exactly of what she's ill of but she is um and while she's ill and while she's you know, under the, in his coma for so long, he forms this incredible relationship with her parents and he gets to know her on this different level. He gets to know her as a daughter and as this fully rounded person. He realizes how in love with her she is. And then she wakes up and she just sees her ex-boyfriend and she's like, you're, you're the guy who hurt me. You're the guy who like, you know, did all these terrible things to me. And he's like, no, 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 I've been here this whole time. I've been watching over you. I've collected all these visitor passes from the hospital. Look, look at all the evidence of me being here for you and look how hard I've tried and look how much your mom loves me and all this. And she's like, I don't care. I, the, my last memory of you is that you suck. <laughs> and that's, um, that's the only way I can really talk about the, the end of this book without spoiling it. Um, is is very is is to talk about the big sick because I found that really inspiring that you can be working towards loving someone and realizing all these wonderful things about them and working towards understanding them working with their family or doing all this stuff and they don't see any of that and they couldn't give a shit you know <laughs> I I found that really compelling yeah that's taking me down many many different. Oh, okay. <laughs> of uh, thought, none of which are right. particularly <laughs> joyful or comfortable. <laughs> um, so that 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 book is coming. I think so. I think they said early twenty two. That gives our listeners plenty of time to read all our hidden gifts, which publishes at the end of May, um, and. For those of you listening, you can follow the links from the ILF Dublin website to our Gutter bookshop to get a copy of the book that way. Um, Caroline, I am so sorry, but we are going to have to draw our conversation to an end. It's been an absolutely fascinating half an hour of discussion and hearing you talk about the book and the inspirations behind it. Um, just kind of thinking about the immediate what's next for you. Uh, you're a little ahead of Dublin. If you're in London in terms of kind of restriction easing, 
So just thinking about if you were to head out into the world to see something in an art gallery or the cinema or the theatre or a bookshop, what would you be looking to get your hands on to to go and visit? Oh my God. So I know this is going to sound as if I'm just saying this for brownie points, but the your museum recently did a show about Nula Ofoilan, I think just before lockdown. And I was so upset that I didn't get to see it. She is one of my mm. favorite authors of all time. Um, and it, I want, it was, and I, uh, it was just, I was just devastated that I couldn't go. And I really hope that it like mm-hmm. it either travels here or you put it on again or something. Um, that is number one for me. If I were to see any, want to see any exhibition <laughs> or show, it would be that one. Thank you. Uh, thank you for co- talking to us. And uh, that is the end. This is the final chapter of our podcast series. But all of the podcasts are available on the ILF Dublin website to go back and listen to again. I would also like to say thanks to our sponsors. The International Literature Festival Dublin is an initiative of Dublin City Council and it's supported by the Arts Council. Thank you to all of you for listening. But thank you, Caroline, for taking us on this ramble (laughs) through your writing, your inspiration and your latest novel. Thank you so much. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council Ireland. To learn more, visit www.ilfdublin.com.